you'll be actually tested in. And that is so, so exciting. I know I came from uh, a real uh, poverty background and my family struggled and everything. And so it wasn't easy to break through a spirit of poverty. And, uh, but I was just thinking recently of um, uh, as Pastor Peter, and it's great to be here with Pastor Peter and Dell, and just feel very honoured about being here. And um, but I, I had, um, you know, I do believe and I have always been been believing that God provides, and He has. But just this last, uh, this last uh, two weeks, there was uh, a, an issue for one of my kids, and it was quite a, a big issue. And it was a debt, um, if you can imagine, just a, a normal young guy with his wife and a couple of kids. But he had a debt that was over them and over him. And, um, and of course, they, been, they want to get a home loan and everything. And you've got to, got to be able to prove that you're not having, you know, lots of debts. But as I sowed, um, as, we, as we do, as we, we can't outgive God. And I love the fact that um, he does say, prove me, to, prove me in this, prove me. And as I, as I did uh, and, and always have, um, uh, just this last week gone by, week and a half it is, um, we got word, and I had been praying particularly for him, that the, um, the debt of $30,000 was cancelled. It's cancelled. And for me, you know, I, for some of you, they may not seem like a big amount. But for, for a young couple that are, that are just wanting to be able to save, and they're not going to be able to save a lot, that's just cleared that and they're going to be able to just forge ahead and getting a home. So I just want to testify this morning that you can't outgive God. Amen. And uh, it says in Joshua chapter 6 that even as they took the city of Jericho, it was called the first fruit city. And they were going to have everything in the promised land. But Jericho, God said, that's, that's for me. And there was one guy there that... Um, uh, decided that, uh, you know, what about me? It's not fair, you know, the whole song. But anyway, um, uh, they actually said these words about Jericho in the first fruits. It was devoted to destruction. So the tithe that, that we give, the sowing we give is devoted to one thing, destroying every enemy that would rob you and I of prosperity. It's devoted, it's work, it's aim. What it does is destroy every enemy of poverty and lack. It's one mission. And so I'm excited, um, you know, to hear, uh, you know, pastor sharing about the great breakthrough with the building. How awesome is that? Oh, my gosh, you're nearly there. Praise the Lord. Nearly there. That's outstanding. So I just want to just lift your hands right now. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. For I am opening up a new well. I'm opening up a new fountain, a fountain of healing, a fountain of victory, a fountain of life. And I'm opening up a deeper well. I'm taking you deeper into all that I have, into all that I have. Yes, it's a well of wealth. It's a well of healing. It's a well of victory. And God says, even as the well, as they waited around the well, and there was an angel that would stir the waters. And the man that had been waiting all those years, and he said, I have no man that would put me in the well. And God says, I'm making up the gap for I made a way. And I'm putting you in the well. I'm the one that carries you into those healing waters. I'm the one that carries you into those places of breakthrough. 
So just receive this day, says the Lord. Just receive, for it's a new fountain, a fountain of life. God says, I'm going to deliver even those that have been in strife, even those that have been contending for a breakthrough. The Lord says, I am the Lord of the breakthrough. And you're going to find that there's much, much more that are for you than anything that stands against you. I'm opening up your eyes to see that surrounding you are chariots filled with fiery angels on your behalf. So get ready to walk into new places of victory, new places of deliverance, says the Lord. For I am going to do the I aming. And I am that I am. And the bush is beginning to burn. And you're going to see it's a new season of healing, breakthrough and victory, says God. Hallelujah. This dream, I actually um, dreamt I was driving my car up a, draw, uh, it was like a one-way street in the bush, had a fence next to it. As I'm driving my car up this lane, it was just like a lane, I came to a dead end. And then I realized there was no room to turn around. And God speaks to me in dreams and um, the Bible says in Job 33 that God speaks one way then another in the vision, in the dream, in the night, trying to communicate with us. And I think it was very spiritual and it probably is, but it's actually when I'm unconscious and not talking that God can actually get through to me. <laughs> so I'm driving my car up and I get to a dead end and um, I realize I can't turn around. So I'm, I go open up the car and I get out and I think I'm just going to have to Get over the fence, go back and open up the gate and go and find help. So as I'm in my dream, as you do, do things, I'm, I'm climbing over the fence like this. And as I do, <laughs> I step through into a wind, turns into a window. And I walk, step into a room full of all these people that are laughing. And there's a, a, a lady there and she looks at me and she, she's laughing and I look at her and I start laughing. And then I woke up and I thought that was a strange dream and, and uh, etc. But then I prayed about the interpretation and the Lord said, when you get over, over your offense, I'm going to restore your joy. And I realized that as a, as a mum that had prayed for my kids and, and had waited a long time for some prayers to be answered, some promises to come to pass, I used to feel sorry for Moses, but then, <laughs> and I added it up, <laughs> I relate more to Caleb. <laughs> he waited a bit longer. But anyway, and, and so I was, I didn't realize, because years ago I had a big problem with self-pity. And when I was saved uh, many years ago, the Lord actually delivered me from self-pity. And you've got to understand self-pity will block us. And, and, and you start to recognize it when God delivers you because it's got a certain sound. And it's like this, why me? God's going, why me? It's not fair. Nothing ever happens. God isn't doing. And I realized that I'd started to become a little bit disappointed in God. I had been waiting for some things a long time. And one of them was my son who had been saved in church, raised a Christian, and um, one of a, a few things. And um, so that was when he was about 14 or 15. We went through a church split. And pretty much he never really came back. I just visit now and then with me. So this is many years later and he's 41. 
That's a long wait. A wife now and two children. Miracles that he'd had along the way. His little daughter, uh, two actually, but both. He's healed of cystic fibrosis. Miracles along the way. And yet, still out of church. And I realized that I had begun to be offended and feel sorry for myself. Well, I waited a long time. And will I ever see it? And I used to have a confession that God was going to do miracles, uh, this, that, and the other. And I do still. But I had dumbed down my prayer to this. God, just keep me alive till all my kids are walking with you. Just keep me alive till I know all my kids are walking with you. Two daughters and a son. And I realized that I had stopped believing for, for better and bigger and greater blessings. Just keep me alive. And so when I repented of that self-pity, I said, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I know I've waited a long time, but I refuse to get offended with you. I refuse to shake my fist at you and say, you're not fair. <laughs> you're not fair. What about others are being blessed? But and when I repented and I began to pray again in faith for my son, I had been praying, but I had been praying through that, that, that disappointment. When I began to pray again in faith, a few months later, he went through a crisis, a big crisis, and, and actually moved back home for a few months. And in that time, I prayed with him. And uh, one, about a couple of weeks after he moved back home, he, he said, Mum, I just sat out in my truck tonight and gave my life back to Jesus Christ. And if you'd have told me back when I was with my offence, why me? That he'd be sitting in my lounge praying in tongues loudly, saying, who should I listen to now, Mum? I've been listening to Steve Furtick and Craig Rochelle and Dee Dee Jakes. Who else should I be listening to? And he's on fire. And he's praying, he's praying for his family. About four or five months later, moves back home. Things are healed. And now his two daughters are actually in a Christian school. And not that that's the be end all. But I minded them the other day. In previous, they'd be into all sorts of just worldly TV shows or whatever, 12 and 10. Well, Miller's in the lounge watching a Christian program. Uh, Ruby's in the bedroom at 12 reading her action Bible, telling me that at chapel they sang Waymaker and we all jumped and sang and shouted and I'm going. And they came home and they said to their mum, mum, would you come and serve at Tuck Shop? And she said, oh, I think you've got to be a Christian because she's, she's on the way. She's a pre-Christian. She said, I think you've got to be a Christian. And they said, but just become a Christian, mum. Just become a Christian. <laughs> That was the best altar call I've heard in a long time. But you see, I'd become disappointed. And the miracles, amazing. The miracles, my daughters are saying, Mum, we can't believe how, how different Lawrence is, how soft he is. And he's praying with us. And I want to say today, if there are things that have taken a long time, I know it's hard and it's not fair. But you see, Caleb, he said this at 85. I'll have my mountain now. He said, my strength has not abated, nor has my eye grown dim, and my strength for war to go in and out has not changed. You see, he was ready at 40, but his assignment wasn't ready until much later. There was nothing wrong with Caleb, but there was a wait. Judges chapter 11. Uh, Judges talks about all the deliverers that God raised up, and I love what the pastor said, that he, does, he, he didn't just die for the smartest and the best. He came for the black sheeps, the white sheeps, the multicolored. Um, 
And he said, that, consider your own calling, brethren. Not many of you were low-born. Not many of you, sorry, were, were high-born. Not many of you were born with a silver spoon in your mouth. But I deliberately chose those who were low-born, insignificant, branded with contempt, that no mortal flesh can glory in my presence. And so God's looking, as Pastor said, for the black sheep, the whosoever's, to turn them into white sheep and to cause us to walk in all his inheritance. So Judges chapter 11 is, a, is about a black sheep. And uh, I thought Pastor was going to start prophesying my message. But anyway, um, Josh, uh, Judge, oh, that's why it's not, not uh, sounding right. I mean Joshua. Joshua, Judges 11. And they were um, having to fight with the Philistines at different times. Judges 11 says, Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valour, but he was the son of a prostitute. And Gilead begot Jephthah, and Gilead's wife bore sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said, You shall have no inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. And Jephthah fled from his brothers and dwelt in the land of Tob, and worthless men banded together with Jephthah and went out on raiding parties with him. And it came to pass after a long time that war, war with the people of Ammon um, w- happened again. Israel had to war with Ammon. And so they went to the land of Tob to get Jephthah out and said, come and be our commander. He said, didn't you kick me out? Now you're coming to ask me to help you. And they said, we will make you the leader and, and head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And so Jephthah went with the elders. I want to just have a look at the buts in our life, that, that life gives you a lot of buts. You know, he was a mighty man of valor, but he was the son of a prostitute. And uh, sometimes before we even get saved, we have a life full of buts. But what about this? But what about that? And uh, so he was born to a prostitute. It would appear that Gilead had an affair with a prostitute. And maybe that little boy was about two years old when she took that little boy. And she took him to Gilead's house and said, here, it's your kid, you raise him. And Gilead's wife had sons. And, um, and, and uh, that boy would not have known that, that, that uh, why he was hated, but he was hated from the very beginning. He was rejected by his mother. He was pretty much uh, motherless. And uh, he was probably hated by Jephthah's wife because every time she looked at that boy, she was reminded that my marriage isn't good enough. I'm not, I'm not enough for my husband. The boys that were in that family would have seen how mum's upset with this little guy, that why should we have him here? Why should he have a bed in Tommy's room? Why should he get presents at Christmas? And look how he upsets mum. And so Jephthah's name means striker or opposer. But it also means one who breaks through. So the redemptive purpose on his life was to be a breakthrough man. But at the moment, he's just got a chip on his shoulder and rejected people reject. They get in and reject you before you have a chance to reject them. So he grew up in this family that he didn't realise as a little boy why he was hated, why he wasn't wanted. The Bible says that the father died because they don't give out inheritance until the father dies and so they're divvying up the inheritance and they say to Jephthah you can just get out don't think you're getting any inheritance and the devil doesn't want you to know you have an inheritance the devil doesn't want you and I to know we have those exceedingly great and precious promises that we have from God a great inheritance the Bible says he ran he ran and sometimes God's even in your runnings you know we run from things in life and he ran to a land called Tob and I know I grew up in a family where there were a lot of butts in my life. And um, that's an unusual word to use in Australia because um, uh, but can mean a number of things. Um, 
And uh, this is where I'll tell a joke. <laughs> Those of us with ample butts will live longer than the husbands who mention it. Praise God. Moving right along. <laughs> but I grew up in a family where my dad was a heavy drinker and a very broken man. He'd been to the war, um, had a lot of war neuroses, and my mum was not a well woman. Um, he, he actually had fallen in love with his cousin and so he was sent out west to get over it and he went to Chinchilla. My mum worked at the base hospital there at 17 and, and they, they got together and uh, got married. And who knows, two broken eggs don't make a, don't make a whole egg, they make scrambled egg. <laughs> and so mum and dad had three, uh, five children, three chronic asthmatics and uh, so it was a chaotic home. Mum had her first breakdown when she was 28, went on to have a number of other ones. Uh, we went into care, and I thank God for the Catholic Church, the Catholic nuns took our family into care. Um, I went to a Catholic school. We didn't have to pay school fees, um, but um, we couldn't afford uniforms. And, um, and so uh, I grew up in a family where there was a lot of fighting, a lot of lack, um, and a lot of uh, ambulances coming to and fro because my two brothers and a sister had chronic sisters had chronic asthma, asthma and so the only way you got attention in my family is if you got sick I tried to get sick I remember coming up as a kid about 11 saying mum mum listen to this <sighs> I got a wheeze I said I'm oh, failing You've just been running around too much and but you see mum they'd say, say well you're the healthy one you got to go to the shop you're the healthy one you can hang out the washing I had it confessed over me so much I can't get sick it's like <laughs> You're the healthy one. You're the healthy one. Well, it wasn't a bone back, a boon back there. It was, it was like, oh, because when you got sick, your mum sat on the end of your bed. You got a lot of attention. Ambulance came, took you to hospital where you apparently got lots of ice cream. And, um, and I remember one night, I, it was three um, bedrooms, so we had to share rooms and beds. And I was sleeping with my sister one night, and she had such a bad asthma attack that she, she fell forward, hit her head on the duchess, and was unconscious and only that I was sleeping with her that I was able to go and alert her uh, parents and another ambulance came and she got to go to hospital and I had to stay home. And, and so, um, so I grew up in this family where there was a lot of chaos and, uh, and at this school where we were, you know, um, not, not had to pay school fees or wear a uniform. And I remember um, in grade three, how do, the, how do, we, how do our hearts uh, start to be formed? Information plus strong emotion. You might love walking and then one day a big dog comes out and chases you. It's a strong emotion. Next time you go to, go to have a walk, oh, what's there for you, big dogs? Information plus strong emotion is what determines the information about ourselves and what our identity starts to get formed at a young age. And in grade three, I do remember the teacher there, Mother Francesca, and uh, we had three teams in our school, Bonsacor, Lourdes and Fatima, and I was on Bonsacor, and when the bell rang, they had markers, one, two, three, and uh, we would stand up uh, and everyone would line up behind you. And I never could be a marker, I wouldn't get there in time. So I remember this one lunchtime, grade three, that I thought I'm going to be a marker, so I stood there all lunch in the sun, eating my lunch, and kids would come up to play, I'm going to be a marker today, I'm going to be a marker. And so finally the bell rang, went, and I'm a marker. There's Lourdes and Fatima there, Bonsco. And you see, uh, as I said, we were ones that uh, just wore our coloured clothes to, church, to school. And as the, as the bell went and that little nun picked up the megaphone and said, would the girl in the coloured dress go to the end of the line? 
with a girl in the coloured dress go to the end of the line. And, and that day, I became the girl in the coloured dress. Your poverty spirit can come in. Shame comes in. I'm, I'm not good enough. See, up to that time, I didn't really realise we were poorbies, that we were, you know. But that day, I became the girl in the coloured dress. And so, in a life that uh, I didn't get attention because I wasn't sick, <laughs> so uh, I started to hang out with the wrong crowd. And uh, by the time I was 16, I was taking drugs. And, and, uh, and in this chaotic family, there was a lot of strongholds. And one of them, when I was about 12, my mum took her first overdose. And uh, that does something to a child when the caregivers of your life need your care. And we went into, uh, the nuns took us in again. And so uh, my mum had a stomach pumped. And as they brought her home, I went up to her just like a naive teenager and I said, Mum, why'd you do it? And she looked at me with a look of hatred. Now, I know she didn't hate me now, but she hated the fact that she was walking back into a situation where she had chronically sick kids, one not expected to live, where she had, you know, a husband who drank all the money, or she'd be often up night crying over the bills. And she just walked past me and went into a bedroom and shut the door. And after that, when things got too much, she'd take a lot of pills, not enough to kill herself, but just to escape. 24 hours just go to sleep just stop the pressure and so we would sit by her bed to listen to her breathing because she hated going to hospital so I grew up in this family where there was a lot of chaos a lot of struggle and I'm just this healthy person looking for attention so uh, attention so I end up taking drugs and smoking dope and by the time I'm 18 I'm riding a motorbike and uh, I'd like to say it was a great big <laughs> it was a Honda 100 and, <laughs> and I graduated to a Yamaha 180. But I wore the black outfit and the stack hat, the whole, the whole thing. Um, I learned on a 360 Ducati, which was ridiculous because it had drop handlebars and the, the instructor, my chin was on the tank. It was like, I just kept dropping it the whole time. In the end, I, I come from Redcliffe, so the policeman saw me riding my 100 Honda uh, come in for my licence. He said, ride to the corner and come back. If you don't fall off, I'll give you a licence. <laughs> They don't do that today. <laughs> so I got involved in drugs and, and hanging out, just looking for love in all the wrong places. And uh, by the time I was 19, I was expecting a baby. So I was with the Catholic Agency for Unmarried Mothers. Um, I was given the address of a family. In those days, the Catholic Church, which is wonderful, the, their stand against abortion is wonderful because at that time they offered to take in pregnant teenagers. And so there I was in that place pregnant, wondering what life was going to bring. And for the first time, it wasn't when's the next party, what's the next, you know, happy time. Um, and there's what's called the elasticity of youth, that I know life's going to be good. My Prince Charming's going to come along. But there is a predictable cycle of events that unless you and I ask Jesus Christ into our heart, the DNA will kick in. And it was only a number of years later, a few years later, my sister's in the hospital in Nambour, on life support, she'd taken an overdose. By this time, I'm a Christian and, and God uh, heals her, sets her free, later on set her free. Uh, and so my brother, my, you know, they both um, getting into drugs, uh, drinking. My brother had come home drunk and I'd be in the kitchen telling him about salvation. And, and um, in the end, I just said to my two brothers, look, if you come to church, there's some really good-looking girls there. 
you're bound to pick up somebody. <laughs> Naughty. But they both rocked up really next week. All right. <laughs> and they both got saved. And my brother Chris runs the Baptist church down in Coffs Harbour. For, he is the COC. Anyway, so, um, so uh, when my daughter was nearly three years old, I had a little girl. And um, got, went back to hanging out with my dope smoking friends. And I, one time I just was chain smoking and she was having a sleep. And I slipped down on my knees and I said, God, if you're real, would you please help me? See, I didn't know people were praying. People were praying for that region. Never stop praying for your city. Because out of the blue, this dope smoking, party going, crazy mother. If you saw me with that little girl, her first birthday party was a dope party. Everybody was stoned. If you saw me, you'd say, well, someone rescue that little girl from that crazy mother. But someone rescued both of us. His name's Jesus. He rescued both of us. And I know when I knelt by her bed and I said, God, if you help me raise this child so she doesn't turn out like I did, so she doesn't hitchhike at 2 o'clock in the morning, I'll serve you all the days of my life. And God has been faithful. Amen? God has been faithful. And that daughter is... It's going on with God. She comes and preaches the gospel with me. They actually say to me now, if you can't send Peter, if you can't, if you can't come, can you send Peter, your daughter? But I want to just say this. That man ran from his problems. He ran from a place where he was rejected and he ran to the land of Tob. And the word Tob means goodness. And in that place... It's a prophetic picture that we have to get a revelation of the goodness of God because he didn't just visit there, he dwelt. He, he sat, he grew in the land called goodness and they sent for him and something had so changed that when worthless men came around about him, he built them into a strong fighting force and they said, come and deliver our nation. And the, the, the guy that had been an orphan that nobody wanted got a revelation of how good God was and he led the nation into destiny. And Jesus said this in the Gospels, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. It says in Romans that I've not given you the spirit of fear again to bondage, but the spirit of adoption, whereby you cry, Abba, Father. And God could have left the language at new birth at how much he loved us, but he's trying to get through to us how great his love is. And he talks about a spirit of adoption, a spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And I believe that God wants to do something deep in our hearts and take us into, open up a portal to the land of goodness. Get a revelation of how good God is. Get it out of our heads and into our hearts. Because it's not, even though faith is a counter, counteracts fear, but it's perfect love that casts out all fear. A revelation of perfect love. And I just want to give you a picture. You see, John Calvin said this, after salvation, the greatest work of the Holy Spirit is to release the spirit of adoption. It's the heart of the gospel. And the spirit of adoption is the thoughts, emotions, the feelings, the revelation. Head knowledge is weak knowledge. You can teach a budgie to say, Jesus loves me, and the cattle still eat it. <laughs> it's what's in your heart that will change your life. And I believe God wants to go deeper with a layer of his love today. Because you're, be you're beloved, cherished and chosen. But unless we actually know it deep in our heart. Because to a world that has been let down, disappointed and, and, and had things thrown at him, everything is filtered through that, yeah, well, we'll wait and see. 
It's filtered through some mindsets that God wants to totally strip away today. So I want to take you on a journey because my middle daughter and um, uh, Madeline, I've got two daughters and a son, and she was the one that would be most likely to be having children. She did mothercraft at school. All her friends' kids love her. But her and her husband, after they were married, they decided to have children and they couldn't. After a couple of years, they went down the route of... Um, you know, IVFs and all that sort of heartache stuff and so expensive and such trauma because they pump you full of hormones and you've got this high expectation and then devastation. And after a number of those, um, I, had, I had said, have you thought about adoption? And, and, um, and uh, so they eventually went down that route. And when you, you, you adopt, you have to just pick one orphanage. You can't have several lions in the fire. You just have to stick with that one and then you wait. And they found an orphanage that was Christian run in Taiwan. And so then the waiting came. You know, God waited for you thousands of years. He's loved you for thousands of years. There's two things that have happened before time began. The lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. You're, it's not plan B, it was always plan A. And you were adopted in Christ, Ephesians chapter 1, before the foundation of the world he planned for you in love so God's plan for you is huge and amazing and so after after waiting um all that time years and years uh, uh we were in church uh, you know and um and I remember just feeling the weight of of just the waiting as my daughter took communion and her husband and I said to her as we prayed together I said Maddie you don't need to pray anymore just thank God for the answer and keep your confession right. Because there were times when she pretty much lost it and said, God, you give this one and that one a baby and they're not even walking with you and, and, and we've been waiting and, 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 it, and you know, she just lost it. Now, I don't think God fell off his throne. I held her. He said, it's okay. Come on. And I'd go home and say, pray. I'd, and I'd pray praying, Lord, don't let her lose her faith in you. Don't let her walk away from you. Don't let her get bitter. I'd go and see her next week and she'd have the scriptures up again on her, on her mirror. And so the waiting went on and we were in church and I said, I'm going to keep praying. And then I was saying to God, I can't go any further until you give my daughter a baby because this is, this is such a wait. Well, this is the next day, Monday, she rings me and she says, Mum, are you sitting down? I said, no, what, what are you talking about? She said, we got the call. I said, what call? She got the call, the call, the call, the call. There's a, at the orphanage, they found a little boy. They've matched us with a little boy. He's 18 months old and his name's Ejan. And I want to say, you know, it was like, wow, we, we got a picture of him. We blew it up, put it up this big on our fridges. You know, I was ringing, what does he like to eat? What's he like? And da-da-da-da. And, and uh, I remember Jeff saying, look, she'll tell you when she gets any information. And then they had to put together a uh, talking book. And that's a picture book with a picture of where he'd be living picture of your forever mummy, your forever daddy. And that talking book was then read to him every night in Mandarin to prepare him. This is God's talking book. This is God's talking book with his promises of how much he loves you. And so they had to, then they got to Skype him. I said, can I be there when you Skype him? And they said, no, mum, it's just appearance. <laughs> and they said, I said, well, can you video you from Skyping? <laughs> okay. So I'm watching and they're, they're trying to attract him with a ball. And he's 18 months old. And, uh, and, and he got a little xylophone out and he's banging away. I said, look at that talent. 
he is going to have to be enrolled at International Hillsong Music School for sure. <laughs> and so then they got to um, have a party, not a, a baby shower, but an adoption party. And, and then they got to go over and visit him. And they bring this little boy into a room where there's some toys. And he's an orphan. And, uh, and they're trying to play with him and engage him. And, um, and then after about 40 minutes, he goes over and puts his little backpack on, puts his hat on, goes and stands by the door, waiting for the people who'd come and get him. My daughter is speaking to him in English. And she's saying this, you don't know yet, but we're going to take you home. And we're going to love you like there's no tomorrow. And we're going to love you for the rest of your life. Is there... And so sometimes, because it's going over his head, over his head, and sometimes we're hearing these words that I've loved you with an everlasting love. I'd not heard that song before about the blood and the tears. I loved it. What he's done, what he's given, and it's like, mm, because sometimes our hearts are shut down, especially if you've been rejected, especially you've had to survive. You've, you see, we're all orphans. The Bible says we're all born separated from the Father, the fall. We've had to survive. We've had to make it happen. And so God's had to come and, and give us this incredible picture. And after that time of talking with him, and they had to go to court. They had to go to court, and in the court, they said, do you agree to look after this little boy for the rest of his life, that he would fully inherit with all your siblings, and that you would commit to taking care of him for the rest of his life? We do. They didn't bring him in and say, if you're a good little boy. And if you're not good the first three years, they'll give you back. It was unconditional, unconditional. His name was Ejan. They planned to call him Jack. They couldn't give it a second name because he would have been Jack Ejan. So. <laughs> so he's Jack Kane Ejan. And so, so then they, um, you know, then, then they had uh, the trip home and uh, we're all at the airport and with our balloons and, the Bible says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And he looked down and he saw that the orphan who you were, he looked down and saw you trying to survive. And with joy, he went to the cross. And I want to give you a visual, um, June, if we could put up the first picture. And we're going to run through these pretty quick. That's our first picture of this Jack. First picture of Jack. Let's sort of uh, just stop there. Second picture. Oh, sorry, no, there. That's the talking book. Next picture, he's got the talking book, yeah, next picture, our adoption party, yeah, next, uh, that's all the cousins, all girls, and saying, are we going to get another brother? And I said, no, it's a cousin, it's a cousin, so that's Maddie and my, other, my four granddaughters. Next one, they're me trying to engage him at the orphanage, just trying to connect with him, yeah, next one, took him out to a park. Wore him out. Next part. Next one. Just still trying to get close to him. Next one. Next one. Yep. There he is. He's ready to go. Just stop there. <laughs> ready to go on the plane and tra travel 10 hours to a place he's never been to. With strangers. With just... Um, he's got three dummies and a bottle. Uh, he tried to put the dummies all in his mouth at one time. Looked like something out of Predator, you know. <laughs> I do watch movies with my kids sometimes. Okay, next one. 
That's our, my first glimpse our first, in the Parramatta Eels colours. Next one. <laughs> there we are. They're at the airport. We're waiting to celebrate him. But the Bible says all of heaven, all of heaven is celebrating. We've got Mary. We've got Tom. We've got, uh, we've got Annette. We've got Terry. We've got all, all of heaven is rejoicing. Now, he is still over his head. It's like, who are these people? What's going on? What's this big deal? Okay, next one. Just so much joy. You have, the Bible says, and for his pleasure, you are created. You bring the Father joy. He doesn't know it. He can't feel it. He's still got an orphan mentality. Next one. Next one. Meeting the family. He has a whole family now. Next one. Off to church. <laughs> Sorry about the bow tie, but anyway, it was a gift from the pastor, so we had to wear it. <laughs> it's very cute anyway. Okay, okay, next one. Now that's the face of a son. It's the face of a son. Next one. That's not an orphan anymore. He's starting to realise. Okay, next one. And he's on a journey now. A journey to life. But I, wanna, I want you to know that God had so much love. He didn't just die for one. He made millions of Chinese and Korean and Americans. He has so much love. And these guys had so much love. They went back again and got our next one. Evangelism is just one orphan going and rescuing another orphan from the, from the whole, from the great worldwide number of people. So there we go. Many, they're, they're sons now. Okay, next one. Great. <laughs> Thank you. When Jack first came home, you know, the, the, he would, they would put him in the high chair and he would squirrel food away. Orphans don't know where their next meal's coming from necessarily. And the, the first English instruction was, uh, word he learned was more, more, more. <laughs> Pointed to the chocolate cupboard, more. <laughs> and the second one he understood was slow down, slow down. And they would find things going missing in the house. He was stealing them and, st and stacking and shashing them away in his room. <laughs> so they eventually gave him a cupboard. It was Jack's cupboard, his contraband. Everything he stole would go in that cupboard. <laughs> if you're looking for anything, he would put it. You see, orphans don't know that they're really going to be provided for. And you have to bond. You see, you have to bond with a child when they're adopted. They have to sleep in your bed, stay in your room. He had a little Thomas tank engine bed right at the end, end of their bed. The bonding is six months sleeping in their bed, in between them, to reattach. And I remember Maddie saying she heard a sound coming once he was in his little Thomas the Tank Engine bed. And she went in and, 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 and found that he'd been crying, but he hadn't been crying loudly. He'd been crying softly. His little jamas was all wet. And she said, Jack, Jack, you've got to call out. You've got to call out Mummy. You've got to call out Daddy. And he goes, Daddy. She says, no, 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 Jack, use your big voice. Daddy, mummy, you see, we have got to realise he does come when we call. Because sometimes we think, well, he, you know, maybe he'll come, maybe he won't. Maybe he will look after me, maybe he won't. And Jack had to learn, and Max is learning now, that God, the God of love, you know, they're learning that, that they're provided for, that, that they don't want for anything. And I remember as Jack started to realise how much he was loved, instead of being 
hiding away, stashing stuff. He'd say, well, this is Jack's house, Jack's car. I remember sitting with him come Christmas. Um, well, prior to that, I'd got him a gift, birthday gift for his birthday. And I remember when he came over to the house, and I'm going to finish in a minute, came over to the house and I'd hidden it. And I said, I found out that he really wanted a Thomas Tank engine. He loved it, actually, the power station. But Maddie had said, oh, no, that's too big. We can't get you that yet. And so, um, so I said, I've hidden your present. So he went around the house. And then I came into this room and I lifted up the sheet and I said, what's this? And he turned to his dad who was behind him and he said, can you get me one of these? And I said, I said darling, this is for you. His eyes got big and he, he picked it up and we took it into the lounge. He just sat in front of it and all of a sudden he got up and he started to drag it towards the door because he's still not sure he's going to get to take it, but he's going <laughs> to line it up next to the door. His nickname was Popo. And I know things started to change and I over the months, because I said to him once we were out for dinner, and I said, hey, Popo. And he shook his head and said, no, mummy's baby. Mummy's baby. Something has to shift where you say, oh, beloved, your name's not rejected. Your name's not fear. Your name's chosen, cherished. You see, he had to get it here. And I went over there and was talking to him about Christmas, and I had the catalogue. I said to Jack, well, what, what do you want for Christmas? So he goes, I said, okay, that. And he goes, oh, and that, and that, and that, <laughs> and that. You see, something happened in the hearts of those ones. And I want to say this, faith works by love. And I realized as a Christian when I got saved, I got saved out of the Catholic Church, and I loved the, what they did for our family, but I never got born again. But religion message is try harder jump higher and I came into salvation was I had such a dramatic salvation but I didn't bond enough I didn't attach enough and I went I'm going to work for you Jesus oh I'm just going to show you that I, I'm just so thankful that you died on the cross I'm going to teach Sunday school I'm going to do this I'm going to do that and I got into a works and I found it hard to believe God for the promises because I'm because outwardly works because of or in order to become looks the same. But because I'm so loved, I want to serve you, is different to I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to earn it. I'm going to work at it. I'm going to prove to you I deserve it. And so I realized many years later that I was still in a works mentality. And that's why God takes us deeper and deeper with this message of adoption. And today, God wants to open up the Father's table today and release a greater depth of God's love that will automatically access his promises. A depth, that word accepted in the beloved means highly favoured, chosen in the beloved. I had another dream and I'll close with this. I dreamt that I was uh, in a room where there were these amazing acrobats and they were men that had been born similar to the th thalidomide babies that they had um, they had little peg legs and little arms, but they could do amazing things. They were jumping and twirling and amazing. But there was a table that was spread, and they came up to the table, and they couldn't, they couldn't reach it. And I want to say this. All that religion can produce is blinged-up orphans. Blinged-up orphans performing for some level of acceptance. But God wants you to know he's lowered the table. 
and no matter what things have tried to handicap us, that the Father's table is open today. And Eddie, old, you know, I had a father that was always angry. And so it was difficult to draw close to God until he healed that father image. And whatever it is today, you see, with adoption comes inheritance. With adoption comes the full plans of God for our life. Amen. Could I have the musicians come? And it's a table of sonship he wants to open today. And we can take that photo down now. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. This is his talking book. He wants you to know he's your forever father, your forever saviour. I'll never leave you or forsake you. It's permanent. It's powerful. He already changed your name and legally made it all, all established before you ever came to him. Amen? And the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave. Because God wanted a family that the Godhead was altered because of you and I. The humanity entered the Godhead. There will forever be a God-man sitting at the right hand of the Father. Every bit God, every bit man to gather you and I. Jesus is a firstborn of many brethren. And the Bible says in John 17 that the same love that he has for Jesus, he has for you. And we have to, we're not have to, I don't like that word have to, have to. But if we look at the fact that if it's going over our head, then he wants it to just drop into our heart that you are precious that you are cherished and that how it says if jesus did not god did not spare his own son how much more will he freely give you what you're believing for in the house today all things could we stand right now thank you lord father i thank you for this house of sonship thank you for this house of sonship today mm-hmm.